0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Padkiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Yahya Shokat. He's an urban researcher who specializes in housing policy analysis and strategies, data visualization, and historical mapping. With a focus on spatial justice and the right to housing. He co-founded the research studio Ten Tuba in 2014. Yahya is a regular guest lecturer and has published books and articles, including Egypt's Housing Crisis, The Shaping of Urban Space, published by the American University in Cairo Press 2020. It is this book that we will be discussing in today's conversation. Yahya, I am very glad to have you here. Welcome to this interview.
0: I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much.
1: Right. So let me begin by asking you a very basic question in terms of what your motivation was behind writing this book.
0: Um, When you look at Egypt, you find that housing uh, and the real estate market are a very big issue. Um, However, very little has been uh, written compared to how how big uh, this issue is and uh, maybe the last book that really comprehensively looked at it was published in 1996, uh, so almost 30 years ago now. Um, Otherwise, scholarly uh, articles and and books have focused on certain faucets uh, of this housing crisis, um, but very few have gone through um, a historic political analysis of it.
1: Right. So uh, let me also ask you a question about some of the main methods that have been used in this work, because when I read it, it really, really seemed fascinating to me.
0: Well, um, for, uh, for me, I'm trained as an architect and I practiced as an architect for, for 10 or so years before I started focusing more on um, policy analysis, research and, and housing, affordable housing advocacy. So I'm maybe, compared to some other academics, a bit free from, let's say, discipline uh, per se. So I was able to use many tools um to try and get to an answer of some of the questions that, uh, that I felt needed answering. Uh, so there's a lot of historic uh, analysis, archival research uh, in newspapers, also uh, first-hand accounts from many uh, people that are affected by by housing issues in Egypt. Um, a lot of that came when I was a uh, housing rights officer at the... A local uh, rights organizations, so a lot of the field work happened then with uh, people that had uh, grievances. Um, so it's pretty much a mix of uh, of, of many different methods.
1: Right, right. And of course, your book is about the question of housing. So let me begin by asking a very broad question that you can sort of enter into the discussion. How is housing in Egypt a socio-political phenomenon?
0: Well, it's, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting, fine, because I mean, I was born in, in the, the, the 1979 and, and since I could... Uh, Read and understand uh, things around me, there has always been talk of a housing crisis. And this talk has not gone away um, in the last few decades. Um, Even though Egypt is probably one of the largest producers of housing uh, per capita in the world, um, this production of housing or overproduction of housing has not led to... A a solution of this housing crisis, or what a lot of politicians actually like to term a housing problem. And uh, for me, it was very intriguing. Uh, You had lots of cinema uh, and writing in the 1980s and up until the early 90s about this housing crisis. Um, Of course, uh, scholarly uh, work uh, around the housing crisis, uh, a lot of critique about housing policy, um, but nothing has really changed in terms of how... um, governments have uh, approached it. And then when I started looking more and more into the history of this, you find that it traces its roots back to probably the 1940s in this kind of modern urban uh, context. And what I found was that every rule of Egypt from the monarchy uh, under British imperialism in the 1940s throughout the 1960s, which was uh, this um, 50s and 60s, was the Socialist uh, Republic uh, and post uh, first post-colonial government through the 1970s and uh, a, a neoliberal government up to now. Every um, from the king and then every president since has associated himself directly with uh, a public housing project. So, so you can see how um, this kind of uh, patronal uh, giving uh, of housing uh, to the poor uh, has been associated with all these uh people coming from completely uh different and and opposing uh political backgrounds but they have this in common so it it's it's really something to look at
1: right so you're talking about a very interesting part of housing and in this context if you could also throw some light on how housing becomes a crisis in egypt as the title of your book describes
0: well, it, it's, it has been the same thing really from the 1940s and you find the first kind of policy papers and research written about um, how to go about it. And, and the main thing that uh, that architects and and uh, put their finger on then was this big gap between what housing costs and what people can afford. And um, this has really been the case. Uh, if you look at earlier uh, projects from the 1920s and 30s to build uh, social housing, um, the, the, the the people behind it were always frustrated at how um, what they built, however much they tried to bring the cost down, was still too expensive for the poorest people to actually pay um, even to cover the cost of it and, and this was really liberal thought is that the, the provision of housing had to cover its costs and it was only in in the mid 1940s uh, when the architect Mahmoud Riyad wrote a paper about how there should be a subsidy for this housing to bridge this gap between how much the housing costs and how much people can actually afford to pay and Egypt was always been notorious for very low uh, wages and and therefore however um, much they brought the costs of housing down it was still too expensive so this first idea of subsidizing the housing by with the government paying this gap between what people could afford and what housing actually cost to build was put forward um, and was, was tried uh, in, in 1950 with the first, let's say, large uh, housing estate. But then very quickly, um, the Socialist Republic was established and put this into the mainstream. So it was only really in the 1950s that you started having housing that was affordable uh, to, let's say, a big part of the population but then again we see a regression of this in the late 1970s with the new liberal regime is that instead of renting the houses out at affordable prices that are related to the wages they started selling the housing again at the cost of of the housing and here we see how much more expensive it became and you start to find um, many uh, sort of critiques and uh, um, uh, commentary from people trying to apply to the housing and not being able to afford it. And this exists still today. Today, social housing is sold to uh, applicants um, under a subsidized scheme, a subsidized mortgage. But this is still uh, very expensive for really the poorest of the poor to actually need this housing.
1: Right. Right. So, how are these houses acquired as well as designed, and who are the primary stakeholders?
0: Well, I think since the 60s we've had um, the Ministry of Housing, which is a, a national uh, level ministry that oversees um, this kind, this the, the, the social housing production. But overall, this is one of, of three main players. So the government is one player in terms of the social housing that you have the private sector the formal private sector that get permits and build on land that has been designated by the government as urban land and they can build on. And then you have the informal sector which is everything from um, owner-occupier families um, to uh, mid-scale developers uh, that build without getting a permit and usually on agricultural land. Um, These, this latter form has been the biggest producer of housing in Egypt since statistics can tell us, which is from about the 1960s or 70s till today. And more or less, they produce... Uh, especially around urban areas, they produce about 50% to 60% of the housing on average. This has started to come down a little in the last few years with big government crackdowns on um, informal housing. Um, and at the same time, the government itself has scaled up the building of uh, social housing or government-built uh, housing. So so now it's starting to tip more in the favor um, of of government built housing, with this formal private sector, which is usually the main producer of, of housing in, in in many countries, the really the smallest now of the three, um, and and this is really a big imbalance uh, because this is where a lot of the money and investments uh, are, and and th- this should be more or less how uh housing is built and I'm not necessarily talking about big developers but even self-built housing if we can call it private as opposed to the government built but for it to be formal and there's no avenue for this there is very little if any uh, government sanctioned land that can be sold to individuals or families the the government has has recently been selling exclusively to um registered developers so and in many cases uh the government has very rarely uh, designed land um in cities or uh towns for individuals to build themselves or or families to build themselves and and this is really the kind of historic traditional uh method in most of egypt so so with this kind of ignoring that demand. Um, it has led to that very big part of society being informalized. Um, And at the same time, this kind of formal, uh, between quotations, private sector, is really geared to the upper middle classes and upper classes. So it's a lot of luxury housing and very expensive housing, leaving only the government to uh, supply housing that is supposed to be affordable, but even then, I do not think, and based on my calculations, it has not been able to cover more than half the demand, even less, um, from groups that cannot afford uh, the form private housing.
1: Right. So you did talk about the government. uh Do you think that there are some shifts in the way the Egyptian government's policies on housing have been made? And if yes, what would be some of the major shifts that have happened?
0: Well, the the major shift that I've been seeing over the last few years is that the government has now expanded uh, its housing to not just be, let's say, for low income or middle income, but also higher incomes. So it's gotten into uh this kind of luxury uh, and upper upper middle class housing um and and this is very intriguing uh, at a time when it's uh, it's 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 being more liberal and a lot of other um, um let's say social uh services like uh health and like uh, education it's been more um a keen uh, to go into the real estate industry, and in in many ways, uh, it's it's not very it's not a strategic industry unless it's just about um, providing uh, subsidized housing or affordable housing. But it, it's not really so. Uh, a big portion of the housing that is government built today um, is actually not affordable, and. In, in this time, this may shift again over the next few years uh, for it to go back uh, to affordable housing. But this can only be helped with the mortgages that um, it gives, which are subsidized because the interest rates in Egypt are very high. You can't, as a private person going to uh, a normal bank, it's very unaffordable to get uh, a normal mortgage. Uh, interest rates in Egypt are now um, over 12%. Um, so the subsidized mortgages are now 3%. So it's a huge difference. Um, but these are only allowed for uh, certain housing of certain prices and for people that meet certain criteria. So it's like these these two markets um, of housing, if you like. Uh, but again, this is a lot of money um, to put into that without going to the core problem of housing, which is basically that land and housing materials are just becoming more and more expensive because of this speculative nature. Um, when I first talked, uh, started talking to you, I told you that Egypt is one of the biggest producers and this really has, has killed this mantra of demand and supply is that there's a pure supply of housing, but it's of a certain price and a, and a certain nature that many people can't afford it. But the, what this does is it produces vacancy. So you have a lot of ghost towns and a lot of um, empty housing that has utilities, that has uh, water and electricity hooked up to it, but no one's living in them or using them and they're just used as a form of investment and and uh, and even pension fund uh, for people that bought them uh, whereas there are many that need the housing to live in them but they can't they can't access them so um, so and this again is being reproduced by, by by these mechanisms that see housing as the main investment uh, and the main protector against uh, rising inflation and and a lot of economic ills.
1: Right. Uh, so, what do you think about the rental markets in Egypt? I mean, have they evolved in any way from the 20th century?
0: Well, throughout the 20th century, I think since World War II, there has been this um, rent control, which in Egypt we call old rent. Where um, anyone that had a contract would would have basically a rent freeze, and the, the rents would not rise. And this was at first an emergency measure because of the war and because of the housing shortage, but then very quickly it became permanent and was actually um, bolstered by the socialist government of the 50s and 60s. Um, and this lasted until the 1990s, where uh, big reforms brought in or liberalized the market. Um, they didn't annul the old contracts, so you still have people under the old contracts, the rent-frozen contracts, but then any new contracts would be completely free um, for landlords to set the prices and for them to, to rise. But basically what it did is a massive deregulation of the market. There is no real um, anything that tells you where rents are supposed to be, by how much they should rise. Um, it, it it was really the antithesis of this rent control. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's, I mean, rent control has its ills and has its Uh, its problems, but then also this very deregulated market has its own problems making uh, rental very much unaffordable for many people. So uh, at the end of the day, in the beginning, um, when it was enacted, it helped uh, a lot of people rent, but then very quickly as prices rose, you find that the amount of renters in Egypt has really flattened out, and in, in the real terms, there aren't many new rental uh, apartments. Everyone wants to own their homes or when they get married they still live um, with their parents but for for new households to live in rental housing it's now seen as a temporary step before they can afford a home but um, households always feel insecure in rental because uh, the rental rights uh, are very um, lightly uh, uh, enacted. Uh, also, landlords uh, or house or homeowners don't really want to rent their homes out because they also feel that the government won't protect them if, if uh, renters don't pay. So it's, it's a very tense market where most people that rent have some sort of physical control of the home. They, they know that they can evict someone if they don't like uh, what they're doing, if they don't pay. So there's there, there's some legitimate acts uh, of evictions, but there's also a lot of illegitimate legitimate act of eviction. Um, a lot of it affects uh, single women um, who are always looked down upon and always uh, uh, victimized in these uh, power relations with landlords. Um, with minorities, with uh, students, so so landlords usually pick um, people that they feel are weaker than them uh, to rent out to because this gives them some sense of security uh, that they will be able to control their uh, their homes and uh, and this is really a big problem and this is why there's a lot of vacancy is. Is that a lot of people don't want to go through this and the housing is there and it's very good. It's very good condition, but it's not rented out.
1: Right. So how would you describe the nexus that exists between real estate developers and government agencies?
0: Well, real estate developers, especially let's say the really big ones, um, have tended to be or, or are ones that have grown under the the previous uh, the regime under Mubarak. This was a regime that lasted about 30 years. It had um, uh, a ring of uh, businessmen uh, around it that benefited a lot from the um, from being close to the government, um, a lot of these uh, developers were able to get land uh, from the government at very low prices, um, and this really catapulted them uh, business-wise, and they remain uh, some of the strongest uh, businesses today, even though that regime doesn't exist anymore and these perks uh, aren't around anymore. So um, this has really been a boost to a certain few and with them came also uh, pressure on policy in these so-called new cities that are coming up around Cairo in the desert around Cairo, where they control big parts of land in them, uh, and with them have been able to build and sell housing that is very expensive, but also to control it. So they control these compounds or gated communities. So even after they sell the homes. Um, people living there live more or less like tenants where these companies control utilities, control security, control maintenance, um, uh, control the services uh, inside, like the clubs even provide now um, schools uh, and uh, shopping and administrative uses. So it's like a running... Uh, business it doesn't end just at selling the unit Um, and this has been really lucrative Um, we did uh, a recent study on this market and we found that about the top 10 listed real estate developers 50% are owned by non-Egyptians through the stock market Um, so this means that this real estate market is very much internationalized. And this gives uh, a very uh, big disadvantage for local residents against this huge international market is that there's a very big gap between the buying power and the market will always seek more and more growth uh, of profits at the expense uh, of affordability. And again, this is another case of this deregulation um of the housing market and very little controls on making it uh, affordable uh, f- for the masses
1: right uh, also uh, what role does the idea of the beautification of the city play in egyptian policy making
0: um, i mean this um, uh, This vision of of the beautiful city or beautification of the city has existed, I think, since even the 1920s or 30s, and where a lot of planners and officials have always not liked the way uh, Cairo looked. Um, Yes, it has a very big uh, poor population and and very big parts of it, uh, of the housing, uh, was either in poor condition, so it used to be. Uh, it used to be, let's say, beautiful between quotations and and well built, but over the time uh, deteriorated. And then, with the from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you had the informal settlements uh, rise, where people uh, cut costs by not painting the facades. And uh, for a lot of people, this this became the ugly uh, part of the city. And there have been many. Uh, initiatives by the government to either demolish uh, these places and build um, designed or planned housing in their place um, and when that was not uh, very viable then they started to give in and say well we'll just paint over them so you have these places that um, are all painted in the same color uh, f- for kilometers uh, along the, the ring road and the highways and um, and uh, and yes, so it's always been this um, it's always irked politicians how Cairo looks, and it's just a, a kind of uh, a shell uh, basically of, of what what is behind this. And uh, very little has been done to sort of address what why really it became uh, between quotations ugly. Um, and, uh, and yes, so we have this, uh, this role it's been very central and it's not going away anytime soon.
1: Right. Last question. Could you also talk a little bit about the scope of future research in this field?
0: Well, um, I think it, it the future is is, is more of, uh, of of looking into into the past and how we we got here, and um, it it's a very um, in in bit, many ways, it's predictable where where this is going to go. Is uh, is that affordability isn't going to happen anytime soon, and people will continue uh, providing themselves with housing um, in the ways that they can, with the means that they can. Um, however much this is cracked down upon, um, it w- it will still happen because. Um, ultimately, uh, you have millions of families that, um, that need uh, to be housed um, and the solutions out there and the, 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 what is offered out there is not within their means or uh, culturally appropriate. So we will continue to have this tension um, until something uh, really deep uh, is addressed in how housing is built um so i see more of this uh i see a continuation of the new cities being built um though so, uh especially with gated communities a proliferation uh, of them uh, but i also see this risk of the real estate market continuing um and uh, and you've always had these kind of bubbles and bursts um and and very little uh, in in the way of avoiding them, so it's what I see is really more of the same. It's just the scale of it uh, is different, um, and uh, and yes, uh, it's uh, it's it's not very different uh, future.
1: Right, thank you so much, Yahya, for this wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure well, listening thank you, to Rita you. Yeah, it was such a pleasure listening to you talk about your book. And I hope that our listeners go back and buy a copy and read the book. Those who have already read it, I hope you read reread it after the perspectives that the author himself has thrown our way. So thank you once again, Yahya.
0: Okay, and thank you for having me.